if you'd take your Bibles with me and turn to the fabulous book of James. We're in James chapter 1 and verse 19. If you'd turn there with me, James 1 and 19. If you're using our Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1208. Our text this morning reminds me of a role which uh, my wife and I are exiting out of but have enjoyed greatly, and that is the role of parenting. Now, I suppose we never stop parenting, but as our children become taller and stronger than us, then it seems like it takes on a little different form or fashion. But in parenting, we teach our children how to live happy and prosperous lives and Part of a parent's teaching is this concept of manners. And and these vary in each home to some degree and with each generation. The idea of opening doors or standing for women of lost favor in some circles. While most still try and teach their children table manners and how to behave. And we may not all agree with Emily Post on her uh, particular proclamations of appropriate manners. But we do understand that there are important skills that our kids must learn about interacting one with another and interacting with adults, proper behavior, speaking when spoken to, and looking in the eyes of those who would address us. And I hope and pray that for you kids out there this morning, that you're relating to this teaching from your parents. That when I talk about manners and obeying your kid or your parents in the way that they teach you manners, that uh, it causes you to smile at your mom or dad over this. To know that they desire to bring you up in in a a God-honoring fashion and that you don't have one of those sour looks because you really don't care much for the whole idea of manners or your parents' teaching on them. Because after all, what lies behind this idea of manners is obedience. It's a child's heart attitude, isn't it? Well, these statements cover the desire of every loving parent. But for the Christian parent, it goes deeper than this. For the Christian parent, the desire is for the child to grow up and to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ. With this goal are contained the ideas of joy and biblical happiness and prosperity. And of course, with the general teaching on obedience comes a greater understanding of how one's heart attitude affects this in salvation. Well, so it is in our text this morning as we come over this new section of James and that which we'll be covering for the next few weeks. Only now, instead of parents teaching their children about obedience and about heart attitude, it is God teaching all of us as his children. And so I've titled our message for this morning, Proper Religious Affections. Proper religious affections. Like, let's take a look at our text together this morning, and uh, then we'll talk a little bit about it. Follow along, if you would, as I read James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, 
in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Proper religious affections. Our text this morning begins a new section. As I mentioned, we've spent the last several weeks in verses 2 to 18 of James 1. And as we've noted repeatedly, that those verses relate to trials. Now we'll see the subject of trials come up again in James because it is a subject of great importance to him and to us. And it uh, requires a reminder. For we understand that repetition is such an important tool by which we learn. And many of you know that pivotal teaching axiom which states that repetition is the key to learning and the key to learning is repetition. Well, today we move into this deeper discussion of proper religious affections. And that brings to mind the question, what are religious affections? Well, it's fairly self-explanatory. Actually, if affections are the things that we love, then we're talking about religious things that we love. Yet these aren't just any religious affections. That is, they aren't just any religious things that we might love. For men can love many things of a religious nature which are not right. We see that in the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, even the Muslims. They all are loving religious affections. But we're speaking about those religious affections which are proper those which are right and good and profitable. Ultimately, those religious affections which honor the Lord our God. Although this is a new section, it's not isolated from the previous section. The connection that exists is regarding the phrase back in verse 18, word of truth. That becomes a, a connective point from that previous section of 2 to 18 down into our section from 19 to 27. That phrase, word of truth, referring to the written word of God. Now, remember that James is the first New Testament book written. And thus, when it speaks about the written word of God, it is speaking about the Old Testament scriptures. That is what he's referring to here. And the connection of that phrase from verse 18, word of truth, comes forward for us four times in our section. We see it in verse 21. 
We see it in verse 22. We see it in verse 23. And we see it in verse 25. In verse 21, it references the word implanted. This is the word of God which brings salvation. As Romans 10, 17 proclaims, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, by the word of Christ. And that word of truth in verse 18 is clearly the same word of Christ for Christ is the truth. As we know from John 14, 6, which tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We understand the connection then between word of truth and the implanted word in verse 21. So also in verse 22, it references those who are doers of the word. This clearly meaning those who are obeying God's word as the only authoritative word which must be obeyed. Or as verse 22 labels it again, being a doer. And that connection of being a doer shows an obedience. It shows a desire to connect with that word of truth that we saw conclude our previous section. And in verse 23, we have those who are hearers of the word. And again, this connects with that word of truth in the scripture. And it contrasts the hearer with the doer in verse 23 repeating that same word doer and bringing more connectivity. And final, the final connection in verse 25 describes the perfect law, the law of liberty. And, and this also a reflection and connection to the word of truth. And, and our word doer also included to help us see that there is this connective thread to the word of God that is moving through all of our verses. So it is this word of truth or scripture which is being referenced in our section and connects to our previous section of scripture. This becomes really important because it helps us understand the context and framework of this whole section of scripture. So with this connection in mind, let's consider our first point in our message, proper religious affections. And I've titled our first point, an effective introduction in verse 19. An effective introduction. James begins verse 19 with a command, as he often does. This you know, my beloved brethren. James begins and he associates himself again with his congregation. Not just calling them brethren as he did back in verse 2, but now calling them his beloved brethren. He does this when his teaching is going to be particularly severe. When it's going to be especially difficult and he knows that it's going to bring condemnation into the hearts and minds of his people. And he wants them to know that he is part of them. He is not separate. He is not standing above and bringing condemnation down upon them as some who are lower. He's saying, I'm right there with you. You are my beloved brethren, and I am sharing in that. And it associates him with that. And this is the same connection we saw back in verse 16 of chapter 1. And if we look back at that verse, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Well, none of us likes to be told that we've been deceived. When someone tells us we've been duped, we've been tricked, that somebody has taken advantage of us, we tend to get a little fiery about it. And so James there associates himself with them as well. 
just as he does here. So this is going to be, beloved, a rather difficult teaching. And as this serves as the introduction for the whole section through verse 27, we can assume rightly that there's going to be some tough stuff all the way through these verses. The command he begins with in the New American Standard is this you know. Other translations read know this. Actually, the latter, know this, is more accurate to the original text. The command is an imperative verb, which as we've come to understand, delineates for us that it is in fact a command. But it is a rather rare form of a command because it has a past tense nature to it. Most commands are often in the present tense form, which means know this now. This past tense form of know this means that this is something that you should already have known. This is something that already should be settled in your heart and mind. James is commanding that they are following the details, but this is something that they must know. So already we see this element of a difficult teaching. Because he's telling them, beloved, you ought to know this. You ought to have this, and I'm commanding you now to know it. So there's a past tense action of knowing that carries forward to the present time in this particular verb. And the material to be known follows next in verse 19, where it says, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. As we understand each of these three areas of focus, we immediately understand our title, The Effective Introduction. These are the areas of hearing and speaking and anger that are demanding our immediate attention and knowledge and of that which we should already know. But notice, first of all, to whom they apply. It is to everyone. The details that you are to know, literally which you should have known in the past and must know, is applicable to everyone. Now note that this is not universal in scope. This is not talking about everyone in the world. This isn't everyone on the planet because James has just reminded us of the specific audience. It is the believers in, his ch in the church. My beloved brethren... So it applies to every brother and sister in Christ, no matter the age, old or young, these truths are to be known. Every believer must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And as we've already identified, our new section relates to our prior section in the connectivity of the word of truth. These are the things of which our knowledge is to apply the Old Testament scriptures. So our command to know in verse 19 is related to that scripture. And so also, three, so also these three actions of hearing and of speaking and of anger are related to the Old Testament scripture. Now we can perhaps recognize the vital nature of these three actions by considering their opposites. It can be helpful at times to consider the opposite of something to better know what's being talked about in this context. So what does the opposite of quick to hear look like? Well, that would be slow to hear, wouldn't it? 
What does it mean to be slow to hear? Does that mean you just don't hear very well and you're kind of like I am and when Karen's talking to me from about more than 20 feet away, I go, huh? That's not what's being spoken about here. That, that phrase, if we were considering slow to hear, would be mean one who would not hear. And that which they are to be hearing is the word of truth. So the scripture tells us to be quick to hear and we understand that the one who is not and who is slow to hear is dull of hearing, who is unwilling to receive the word of truth. Well, we must understand that connection. And likewise, as we consider our next point, the opposite of slow to speak is quick to speak. Instantly responding. Coming, coming forward, not thinking about what's coming forward, but immediately coming forward with a rebuttal. Not even listening, but waiting for a break in the other person's comment so they can dive right in. I know what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm ready to come back at this. We understand this full well, and I think that this is understood perhaps best in the confines of marriage. For so often when we are in a discussion uh, uh, of uh, intense fellowship, as Karen and I like to call it. Sometimes you tend to respond pretty quickly, don't you? Maybe you're not really listening to what she has to say, but you've got an answer. I'll tell you what, that's usually not a good sign. And that's what it means here to be quick to speak, but the scripture says rather be slow to speak. Now the question for us becomes, how does this apply to the word of truth. Well, we'll see that when we get to our fourth point. So you can make a note of that and we'll get back to it. And last of all, the opposite of slow to anger is quick to anger. Well, we all understand this. It means immediately set off. This also initially is difficult to see how this relates to the word of truth. But we'll get to that in just a few moments. So already we have our first point of application, don't we? Are any of these opposites true of you? Are you slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger? Or, or more rightly, perhaps I should phrase the question, my beloved brethren, when was the last time this was true of you? And or which of these is frequently true of you. Boom. Tough teaching. An effective introduction. The rest of the section will deal with each of these three elements. And if you're looking at your outline there in your, in your bulletin, you'll see that the third point relates to hearing. You'll notice the fourth point in your outline relates to speaking. But the second point is about anger. And that's what our second point brings forward. And so let's go to that second point now. And you'll note that I've titled this, The Effect of Anger. The Effect of Anger. Anger is manifested in our actions. It's evident in our outward expressions. We are blessed to be soon to be celebrating 30 years of marriage, which I'm so grateful for. But my wife reads me like a book she knows every facial expression. She knows everything about me. And I don't need to say a word for her to understand when I have an attitude problem or perhaps a bit of anger. She understands clearly my attitude 
from my actions of expression. But anger can also come out in vocal or physical or even mental ways in the way that we might express it. Well, what is the biblical description of anger? Let's, let's move back to that and focus ourselves on God's word as it relates to anger. And in Galatians 5.20, Paul includes anger in a list of sins which keep a person from heaven if they are a pattern in your life. Galatians 5.20, this list includes enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. In each of these, we see a form of anger, and each are outward expressions of action. Enmities, that, that hostility which comes in, which is evident when that enmity exists and you are in the presence of that other person and your countenance changes. The, the issue of strife and jealousy, those things where we become bitter to others and find ourselves in sin. Outbursts of anger, even disputes, and those things which cause dissension and division and faction. Each of these are an example of anger. Paul also expresses anger in the escalating list of Ephesians 4.31, where he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Each of these are further expressions of anger, and they're an escalation where he begins with bitterness that root which is inside of us that festers and begins to boil and cause a problem. And then it moves forward to wrath, that seething internal action which is consuming us and then expresses itself outwardly as anger, even as clamor and slander, all the way to malice and the expression of wickedness. Well, we see that anger is expressed in actions. And, and now we have broken up our second point, the effect of anger, into two subpoints. You'll see the first of these in verse 20, and it's also listed there in your outline. That first subpoint of the effect of anger is anger's biblical consequences. Anger's biblical consequences. Look at verse 20 with me. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, some might be tempted to address anger in light of this statement and say, well, my anger is a righteous anger. And they consider that, that I, am, I am not in a sinful condition in the anger which I have. Well, there is an anger which is not sin. There is an anger which is righteousness, and in fact, it's described in Ephesians 4.26, where it says, be angry and do not sin. But this, is, this righteous anger is an anger over evil. It is an anger over injustice, immorality, or ungodliness. But the type of anger which is being spoken of is righteous is that which is an offense against God, not against oneself. So if we might think that our anger is righteous, the question that we must ask is, is the offense against me? 
Because if it is, then it is not a righteous anger which you are expressing. When it is an offense against God, then perhaps you are expressing a righteous anger. And the anger we see in verse 20 is clearly not righteous. And that is what verse 20 tells us because it does not achieve the righteousness of God. And most anger is unrighteous, as is being proclaimed in our verse. It's further conveyed in the phrase, anger of man. It's not anger that is in line with God, but it is that which comes from us. Just as the question I told you to ask of yourselves. And this anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. Literally, it does not work the righteousness of God. God's righteousness is a sovereign gift, which he gives to us in salvation. So the one who is angry is not achieving the righteousness of God. That is, they are not doing the work that reflects God's righteousness. This also explains the connection to the word of truth or scriptures. One must be slow to anger for the one who is angry is not receiving the word of truth. Thus that word of truth is not doing its work in making us righteous. And this one is not being made righteous. We understand the clear parallel in this because we know that it is God's word which is truth, as John 17, 17 tells us. And it is that word which brings righteousness to us. You know, I, I love the, the quote as John chapter 6, and the Lord has brought some tough teaching about the disciples, the, the broader group of disciples around him, that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood and the and the people can't handle it and many of them leave and Jesus is there at the end of John chapter 6 speaking to his disciples and and he says will you leave also and Peter Peter wonderfully responds where will we go you alone have the words of life it is these words of righteousness. It is these words of truth which our anger is precluding us from being able to take in and to do the work of righteousness from them. Proverbs talks about these that are slow to anger as well. In Proverbs 15 and verse 18, it says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Look at how that one who is slow to anger brings a peaceful resolve as opposed to the quick to anger. The quick to anger is referred to also in Proverbs 29, 22. In Proverbs 29, 22, it says, an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. We must recognize the immediacy of that which precludes the word of God, the word of truth to coming, in coming to us, and precludes our growth and our doing righteousness if we are the one who is quick to anger, and thus we must not be. I think most of you know a person who is quick to anger in this fashion. And let's remember too, that our verse is speaking about believers. I have known men and even women who are so quick to anger. 
so quick to bring up a charge or accusation. It's almost as if they're launching their attack before the one speaking has even completed his sentence. This is a serious problem interpersonally, obviously. But even more so is the problem of this anger is not achieving the righteousness of God. It stops the work of the word. There's one other vital connection that exists in verse 20 that we must see. James often refers to the Lord's teaching, as we know from our prior weeks of study. We've seen this and referred to many of these connections. Perhaps some of you can even identify which of the Lord's teachings we might be talking about and those which James most often refers to. Any educated guesses out there? A hint? Something we've addressed in our previous messages? Or something I've included in our weekly email for the last six weeks? Well, I'm sure many of you are thinking... The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And that's exactly right. That is what James has repeated to, has referred to almost 10 times so far in our text. Well, Jesus addresses anger in his first subject in the Sermon on the Mount after he brings the Beatitudes and the disciples' instruction. This is the first teaching that the Lord brings. And this is what he says in Matthew 5, 21. The Lord says in Matthew 5 and 21, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus redefines anger and makes it parallel with murder. Both are equally guilty before the court. How serious is anger? How quickly do we move away and think of it as an insignificant issue? Perhaps we become angry and we're over it. But what has our anger done to those around us? You know, I, I love the, and I, I often confess, and Christopher's going to teach you all the VeggieTale songs one day here soon so we can sing it together. But I love the Angry Eyebrows version of the VeggieTales video. It talks about how these, ang- these eyebrows, and isn't, aren't the eyebrows a perfect thing to reveal anger? I mean, we just see our eyebrows kind of seething and they're twitching and so these big furry eyebrows are flying around and everybody that gets near them becomes angry. And all the wonderful little vegetables, Bob the tomato and, you know, Larry boy, they're all, they all just sudden get angry. Isn't that what anger does when we're around it? When when we're angry or when someone's angry around us, doesn't it just immediately wear off on you? It just vexes your spirit. And if you say, oh, it's just over. No, it's not over. Look what you've done to someone else. Guilty before the court, same as one who would murder. So anger's biblical consequence is not achieving the righteousness of God. And that because this quickness to anger precludes the receipt of the word of truth. And because the one who is angry is as guilty as a murderer in the eyes of God's court. So as we reflect upon anger and its devastating consequences, we must make sure that we are not like those who go off like a rocket in the heat of the moment and anger. 
And it's critical that we each address our own anger. Beloved, let me implore you, you must look into the mirror of the word of God and into the mirror in your bedroom and bathroom and say, how is my anger? And if you can't assess it for yourself, perhaps you need to ask someone close to you. It's critical we each look at this. Well, seeing anger's biblical consequences, let's now turn to our second subpoint of the effect of anger, which is anger's biblical construct in verse 21. Anger's biblical construct. We saw throughout the first section of James the nearly continuous use of contrast. And we've often mentioned this is a function of James' writing because he writes like the New Testament Proverbs. Proverbs being a Hebrew book of poetry which uses contrast continuously in every verse. The two-line stanza, the second line, either contrasting or complementing the first stanza, that being the function of contrast that is used. And James, again, brings our attention to the use of contrast. In verse 20, we saw the negative results of anger with its consequences. Now, in verse 21, we see the positive side of anger and how it rightly reckoned can be constructive. And this is anger's biblical construct. Our positive construct is alluded to by the connection therefore at the beginning of verse 21. This is a, a logical conjunction that makes direct inference of what went on before. It, it's like saying, okay, now we understand that principle from verse 20, so let's consider another facet. And in our case, the other facet that therefore alludes to is the contrast of consequences, which we saw in verse 20, and now to the positive idea of constructing in verse 21. There are two components of this positive side of construct in verse 21. So James doubles up on the positive side of the contrast in his response to the previous negative section in verse 20. And that first positive component of anger's biblical construct is the acceptance of error. The acceptance of error. Look at verse 21 with me. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The positive acceptance of error is to put aside these two dark components, which are a result of one's anger. The putting aside here is a Greek word that means taking off or stripping oneself, as in taking off dirty or filthy garments. It's not a figurative expression. This defines a literal stripping away which must be done. This is also used in the same way in 1 Peter 1-2. The verb tense and, and our word shows us that this is a past tense action. This stripping away must occur in a prior function to the second part of our verse and the second part of our construct taking place. It is like, you know, when, when we get dressed in the morning, we don't put on our, our sport jacket before we put on our dress shirt. You just don't do it that way. So 
the same order applies here. That the putting aside must come first. And this taking off which must first happen is all filthiness first. There are two components that must be taken away or taken off or put aside. And the first is all filthiness. What does that mean, all filthiness? It's all moral vice. It is baseness in every fashion of mankind. One commentator notes, it is the meanness of mankind whose hardness cannot receive the word. Again, we're speaking of believers who have made professions of faith, but as more truth and teaching come to them, they cannot accept it. The hardness of their heart and their flesh get in the way. The filthy garment of their flesh will not allow the word of truth to penetrate. John MacArthur notes that this word is also used of earwax. I know that's not a very wonderful picture. But that sin which blocks or impedes the believer's spiritual hearing Isn't it interesting that we see an overlap now of anger along with hearing that we saw back in our effective introduction? And we'll see more of this overlap throughout our section. Well, all of this must be removed as filthy garments. So also the second matter, which is all that remains of wickedness. The word all before filthiness also applies to that which remains of wickedness. Literally, we could translate this as all abundance of wickedness. This is, this is a massive quantity of wickedness. And again, we're reminded, this is within the believer. This is, this is like we saw in Haiti. I'd, I'd never seen anything like it before. And we saw it a number of times. Men out with a standard spade shovel loading a 10-wheel dump truck. And Tom and I were thinking... How long does it take to fill a dump truck with a shovel? A really long time. That's a really lot of material. That mass of material is exactly what he's talking about in all abundance of wickedness. Wickedness also being translated as malice or evil. It is that which is opposite of virtue. That which is contrary to the fellowship of the body. And what James means by all abundance of wickedness is that there is a lot of wickedness or evil. It's overflowing in mankind, even in the believer. These are the evil thoughts and desires. These are the the elements which rise up in men, causing temptation, leading them astray, and their desires cause them to sin, as we just saw in our previous section. One commentator summarizes these two characteristics. As applied to the mind of a Christian, it would match meanness when describing the condition which prevents the accepting of the saving word with meekness. Never ready to hear and learn, always quick to talk a lot, even quick to flare up when others will not let him talk, or when they venture to contradict, this person shows himself cheap and shabby and also mean and inferior in his mind. 
He is not fit to accept the word in that state. End quote. And these beloved must be stripped off. But in order to strip these off, there must be an acceptance of the error. That is, we must recognize that these exist even within us. For without this recognition and acceptance, one is unable to strip them away. My beloved brethren, do you recognize these in yourself? We cannot be strengthened until we know our weaknesses. A doctor cannot heal until he knows what is the affliction. So too, we must recognize our disease. And this is the acceptance of error. And our second positive component is the acceptance of eternity. The final part of verse 21 carries this component of eternity where it says, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. A contrast exists between the negative components in anger in verse 20 and the positive components of construct in verse 21, but a contrast also exists within verse 21. It is positive to strip away those horrible, mean features of man. But it is so much more positive and such a greater contrast to look now at this second component of the glorious results of eternity that await us at the end of verse 21. This contrast is indicated first by the phrase in humility, also translated as in gentleness or in meekness. This humility or gentleness, this word indicates a lowliness which is related to the humbleness and the state of humiliation which we saw back in verses 9 to 10. Remember those examples that we saw, the brother of humble circumstances who is to glory in his exaltation. And the spiritually rich man who is to glory in his humiliation. It is understanding that we bring nothing to the table and that everything that we have, God has given us. And for that, we are meek, we are humble, we are gentle. You know, the world hates those who are meek and seeks to extort and to take advantage of them in all manner of opportunity. But to the Christian, this humility or gentleness is a great virtue. And it relates to his relationship with God and with other men. It is this gentleness which is ready to abandon the base things of the world and of the flesh and to embrace the word of God. Or as James describes it in verse 21, the word implanted. This is not the, the first time acceptance of the word for these already believers occurs. This is the word which the believer hears again and again and receives it as it is implanted into his very soul. All of these reflecting the believer. Our first case, those who must strip away this meanness because it keeps the word from coming in. It's like a shield the word bounces off of. But here the believer receives it. And it is the hard words of James' teaching 
that they must continue to hear. Beloved, it is the hard words of these teachings which you must hear and which you must willingly accept and not harden your hearts against. And the vital nature of their hearing is because of its results that it is able to save your souls. This ability to save describes the word, but it also brings forth the idea of the power that is in the word that brings salvation. Draws us right back to that incredible verse that Paul writes in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This word, this word of truth, this word implanted, it is the power of God to salvation. And the continual growth that must happen in all of us. It's also closely paralleled by Ephesians 1.13 where it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Beloved, this is the gospel that saves our souls. This is the understanding that we are wretched and dark and wicked in our flesh and that nothing good dwells within us but that Jesus Christ has come to give his life so that we might have life. But we must receive that understanding. We must daily take in the truth that shows us who we really are. And we must understand that we have to grow in understanding of this truth. That we must continue to teach others this same understanding. For there are many around us who proclaim to know this truth and yet who do not have any inkling of the darkness that is in their heart. Nor will they go home and seek that darkness. For it is too hard and they think themselves too righteous and too good. We must be those who speak the truth of God to them and speak it to ourselves first. We must realize that repentance is a gift from God that we exercise every day of our lives as we look into the mirror of his word and to the reality of who we are and cry out that we are wretched before Christ. But praise him that he has given his life so that we might have life. That by his blood, our sins, though they be as scarlet, are white as snow. But we must receive this truth. This implanted word must continue to sink into our hearts. This is the gospel. This is the power unto salvation for all who would believe. Do you believe? Is this the understanding that you're living by and glorying in every day? Beloved, this is the effect of anger. The negative action of attitude that results from anger which does not achieve God's righteousness and therefore thwarts the Christian process of sanctification and hinders or stops his growth and progress towards heaven. And it is the positive attitude of acceptance, recognizing and accepting of the error which lies within each man and stripping it away and with gentleness receiving the word implanted, that word of truth which is able to save our souls, which is able to deliver us 
into the arms of our loving Savior. You know, teaching manners to our children is often difficult. Yet it will yield great reward as they learn and understand the value of their parents' teachings. How much more is realizing that we must be slow to anger? For in the one who is quick to anger is also the heart of a rebellious child. The one who believes he knows enough or worse yet, that he knows better than the word of God. Well, the reality of our lives is that we often fall in one of these categories of thinking we know enough or that we know better. It's only when we grasp the consequences of our anger and we realize who we are, when we further embrace the humility by which the word that although it may cut is designed only to heal, that then we will realize the value of the teaching of our Heavenly Father. And only then will we grow and bring Him the honor and the glory that He alone deserves. May these truths be those which are penetrating each of our hearts that the glory of God would be more powerfully revealed in each of our lives and that those around us may see that we are his children because of what he has done in us.